I'm on right now. I don't believe you. That's not six. One plus two plus two plus one. You really are crazy. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Me? No, come on. Don't be crazy. Hello, everyone. Have y'all ever questioned if La La Land deserved to be nominated for Best Picture? Or debated if Quentin Tarantino is actually overrated? Or perhaps challenge others by asking, is Die Hard even a Christmas movie? Well, here on the Don't Be Crazy Movie Podcast, we ask those questions and more with the help of fellow film enthusiasts. Who's we? Well, I'm Zach Rancourt, and with me today, I have the honor and the privilege of introducing Aaron Bean. We might not be certified film critics or have our own column in The New Yorker, but the only thing we love more than cinema is talking about it. Aaron, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. How are you doing, Zach? Thanks not for too, having me on. Not too bad. This is, uh, I think, episode three with you. Two. Uh, I you did second three. One. No, no, no. Oh. I wish it was. I thought you did one previously, but maybe, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe We I'm did just... Dumb and Dumber, and that's it. You just bring me on for dumb movies. Dumb Dumber's fantastic. It's one of my favorite comedies of all time. We agree uh, on that. But uh, yeah, for anybody who's brand new, why don't you just uh, tell us briefly about yourself? Yeah, so I mean, uh, your friend, been your friend since college, uh, amateur film enthusiast based on the fact that I've taken two film classes in college with you. Uh, and I just love watching movies and discussing them and, and looking a little bit deeper at them, you know, not just the, the story, but how they're made. So deep. So deep. Like getting so deep in there. I'm a storyteller. Yeah, you are. And this is a story we are going to be talking about tonight. This was a brand new movie for me in the sense of I've heard this movie, but I've just never seen it. So this is a brand new watch for me. But this is one of uh, Mr. Bean's famous or no, I'm sorry, not famous, but favorite movies of Mm -hmm. all time. And this is 1954's White Christmas. Uh, It was directed by Michael Curtis. He did Casablanca, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and Mildred Pierce. The screenwriters are Norman Krasna, Norman Hanema, and Melvin Frank. Uh, It stars Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, Vera Ellen, Dean Jagger. Is it Jagger? Probably like Jagger. I think it's Jagger. Dean Jagger, and Mary Wicks. Critical reception on IMDb, it got a 7.5 out of 10, which is a pretty good score. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics, the tomato meter, it's 77% with an 88% audience score. So, wow, this one is a, is a high ranking film. Does that, it, does that use, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but does oh, that no, usually go. tell you that like if there's a higher audience score than the critic score, do you think that that generally means you're going to like it more or less? So, I don't look at Rotten Tomatoes and think anything of it, honestly. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, like it, which is fine. But for me, I think that they've messed up so many certain films with audience score versus uh, like the critics, critics score. Like sometimes critics love it. Audiences hate it. And that's, you know, very well the case or it's a complete opposite or the opposite. Audience loves it. Critics hate it. And then, yeah. So um, I try not to put too much weight into the tomato meters. Gotcha. But yes, so it is available on Netflix for free. If you have Netflix, um, if you have the ads version, I don't know how that looks, but I don't think they've started that yet. Do they do that? Yeah, they're oh. they're cutting back and doing some plans and all that nonsense. OK, I couldn't find a budget because this was a movie, um, you know, uh, made in the 50s. But in the U.S. and Canada, roughly, it grossed about nine hundred and twenty eight thousand dollars. So not a million. But in the 50s, that's a lot of money. Yeah. That, I mean, what would that be t- like transferred in today's money? Inflation would put it at $9.6 million. Really? So really not even that much still. 
Yeah, so it didn't make that much money. But this is the there weren't many theaters you could go see a movie. It was a, it was a special yeah, event when you went to a theater. They um, cost op- a nickel. <clears throat> opening weekend, I got about half of that. It looks like. And again, these are all really rough numbers. Opening weekend, it says five hundred sixty six thousand um, in the U.S. and Canada, and that was on December 9th, two thousand eighteen. And then gross worldwide, it was one point one million dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's probably like twelve million dollars. Here are some fun facts. Although Dean Jagger was made out to be the old man, the Bing Crosby was actually six months older than Dean in real life. And Bing was looking pretty old. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know about that nine kid conversation. The man's like 53. <laughs> yeah. White Christmas was the first fo- uh, film photographed in Paramount's widescreen VistaVision process, a radical departure from the other widescreen formats of the era. VistaVision did not extend the width of the screen as much as it raised the height which produced a significantly clearer image. Not surprisingly, the hundred or so films shot in VistaVision, notably High Society in 1956, North by Northwest in 1959, and White Christmas, have produced or have provided the most vivid clarity when transferred to high-definition home video formats, as VistaVision applied the same principle and was, in effect, the first experiment in high def. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I like it. And then finally, uh, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. The snow used at the end of the film is actually asbestos. Yeah. I mean, the fifties, they didn't, I don't think they knew what asbestos really did to people. So yeah. Another steak and donut sandwich while we go play in the asbestos. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I think that's so interesting. Like we were talking about the age thing during the show, during the the last viewing of it. I never really thought about it that much, but yeah, like I looked it up, Bing and Jagger were both 51 when they shot that film. And yeah, he's like 51. He's going after these like, you know, mid 20 year old women like eh, it was fine for the day, but still kind of weird, you know? Yeah. Um, I, and all they really did was give him gray hair and I, being Pros- being Crosby's hair was probably just dyed for this movie. But yeah, it, it um, no one in this movie is really attractive. I'll just put it that way. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. very interesting because they, they all have like 50s good looks, which is mm. not not much. Um <laughs> But you talk about Grace Kelly and stuff like in Rear Window, and she was insanely yeah. beautiful. I mean, she's a princess. Hepburn. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn was stunning. So, yeah, there weren't many. Cary Grant was a handsome guy. So, yeah, it's just kind of. Well, yeah, I was thinking that like Rosemary Clooney was supposed to be like the the babe, you know, she mm-hmm. played uh, Betty. And she, I, I, the way I described her is she's like a handsome woman. She is a handsome woman. She has, yeah. she has a lot of masculine features, and yeah. it's not a bad thing. It's just that. I guess I wasn't really. I mean, but being Crosby's not a good catch for, for either. That so <laughs> well, he had money. I don't know. You got to. He has a good voice. It's a sultry. He does. Voice. Yeah, true. So the the VistaVision thing I think is interesting. Did you notice? Or did you feel like there was an effect on the film of being shot in VistaVision? Um. Yeah, and and I want to save that because we'll get into it because like we'll talk okay. more about kind of how these films are shot. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so here's a synopsis for anybody who has not seen White Christmas, just like me. If you want to skip this, fast forward ahead maybe four minutes. Uh, it's kind of a longer synopsis. So on Christmas Eve in Europe in 1944 and, and the height of the World War II, former Broadway star Captain Bob Wallace and aspiring performer Private Phil Davis entertain the 151st Division with a soldier show. The men have just received word their beloved Major General Thomas F. Waverly, because we love him, has been relieved of his command. Waverly arrives and delivers an emotional farewell. The men send him off with a rousing chorus of the old man after waverly departs enemy bombers attack the area and everyone takes cover phil pulls bob away from the collapsing wall from a collapsing wall and is wounded by debris bob asks how he can pay back phil for saving his life and phil suggests they become a duo act 
Bob is not fond of the idea, but feels obliged to agree. After the war, the two make it big, first as performers, then as producers, launching a hit musical playing around. They receive a letter supposedly from their old mess sergeant, Ben Freckleface Haynes, asking them to view their sister's act. They watch Betty and Judy sing at Novello's, a Florida nightclub. Phil, who likes to play matchmaker, notices Bob's Bob is interested in Betty. After the performance, the four meet, and Phil and Judy immediately hit it off. Betty and Bob, however, argue about Bob's cynicism and the fact it was actually Judy who wrote the letter instead of Ben. Bing Crosby as Bob Wallace and Danny Kaye as Phil Davis. Don't know why that said that. Finding out from Judy that the girl's landlord is falsely suing them for a damaged rug and has even gone so as, so far as to call the police to get his money, Phil gives them tickets he and Bob purchased to spend Christmas in New York City. Bob and Phil improvise a performance to buy uh, the girl's time, then flee to the train, where they now have to sit up in the club car, much to Bob's chagrin. The girls convince Phil and Bob to forego New York and spend Christmas with them in Pine Tree, Vermont, where they are booked as performers. Upon arriving in Vermont, they find all the tourists have left due to no snow and unseasonably warm weather. They arrive at the empty Columbia Inn and are aghast to discover that General Waverly is the landlord of the hotel, has sunk his life savings into it, and is on the verge of bankruptcy. Phil and Bob decide to invite some of the cast playing of playing around to Pine Tree to stage a show to draw in the guests and include Betty and Judy in the show. Betty and Bob's romance starts to bloom. Later, Bob discovers Waverly received a humili humiliating rejection letter to his request to rejoin the army. Bob determines to prove to the general he has not forgotten and calls up Ed Harrison, another old army buddy who now has his own variety show for help. Ed suggests they put the general on the show and make a big scene of his misfortune and Bob's kindness, which would be free advertising for Bob and Phil. Bob strongly rejects the idea, but unfortunately the housekeeper, Emma, e Emma eavesdrops on the other uh, phone for the first half of the conversation and really screws everything up. She relays Ed's idea to Betty who becomes suddenly cold towards a baffled Bob. Phil and Judy stage a phony engagement thinking Betty is trying to avoid romance because she does not want to leave Judy unprotected. However, this backfires when Betty accepts a gig in New York and leaves. Phil and Judy admit the truth to Bob, who becomes enraged and hurries to New York to tell Betty. They partially reconcile, but Bob meets up with Harrison before he has a chance to find out what really was bothering her. Betty sees Bob go on Harrison's show and invite the entire 151st Division to secretly join him at, at Pine Tree to surprise General Waverly at Bob and Phil's expense. Realizing she was mistaken, Betty returns to Vermont just in time to be in the show. Once again, on Christmas Eve, the soldiers su surprise Gener General Waverly with another rousing chorus of the old man when he arrives at the show, bringing him to tears. During the performance, Betty and Bob become engaged and Judy and Phil decide to go through with their own engagement. As everyone sings White Christmas, a thick snowfall of asbestos uh, <laughs> blankets Vermont. That is White Christmas and it is a doozy. It's a long one for sure. Um, it's Aaron, two hours. I mean, it's not that long. Oh my God, it's two hours I want back. Oh, Aaron wow. loves this movie with a passion. And you know, it's obviously with a name like White Christmas, you're going to assume it's a Christmas movie. So it does start out with the Christmas classic and titular song, White Christmas. We were singing it before this. Everyone's probably heard this. Uh, but was this, when you first saw this, was this your first time ever hearing this when you were a kid? And then on top of that, what are some of your favorite Christmas songs? Yeah, I mean, I kind of was under the impression that the movie invented the song, which I suppose might not actually be true. But this is, yeah, this is what I knew it from. This is what I figured was the the 
the start of what made that song such an iconic Christmas song. And granted, I, I grew up watching this movie pretty much every year and, you know, hearing the song and singing the song and all that. So for me, um, I rec, I like associated this song with Christmas. That was Christmas. Right. And the other songs I grew up listening to were all like the old school stuff. You know, my, my parents were that old school, like Norman Rockwell, you know, sort of painting of a Christmas feature. So it was this, it was the churchy songs like, um, in Excelsis Deo is one I can think of. Um, but I also do like some of the more modern Christmassy music, as long as it's not over commercialized. Cause a lot of them these days, I feel like people are just making Christmas albums for commercials or, you know, cause somebody said, Hey, you should make a Christmas album, Michael Buble, you yeah. know? Um, <laughs> but some, there is still some good ones. Um, the one I can think of off the top of my head is um, like rocking around the Christmas tree and some of the stuff that even though it's older is at least a little bit more fun and poppy. That's a that's a good one. And it, I mean, what's the first movie that you think of when you hear rocking around the Christmas tree? Home Alone. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's the only answer. With yeah, Michael I, Jordan going across the window. Yeah, I, I can't think of any other movie that comes to mind when I hear that song. And it's it's a great one. I, I agree. I worked retail for a very long time, so I'm very, very versed in the Christmas music. And I actually really like it. All the memes about, oh, Mariah Carey's coming up. I mm-hmm. loved it. I, I could I could listen to it all day and I was totally even that's even Mariah Carey's song. I think it's amazing. It's it's so good and it just gets me excited about Christmas. But I mean, everyone knows that the the only answer ever for what's your favorite Christmas song is you say, what's your favorite Christmas song and why is it wham last Christmas? Oh, um, that's a good one. Last yeah. Christmas is unreal. It's so goddamn good. That's a good so, song. So that one's incredible. Feliz Navidad is incredible. Mm-hmm. Wonderful Christmas mm-hmm. Time by Paul McCartney is is incredible. Um, some of the older ones are, are really good, too. Uh, gosh, what else? Nat King Cole, the Christmas song. Mm-hmm. Um, Merry Christmas, baby. Otis Redding. Uh, Christmas and Hollis by Run DMC. That one's a great one. I will say also, um, what's his name? That Josh Groban has an amazing Christmas he's, album. He's really good. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, Holy Night. He's really good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he does a Come Yield Faithful. Uh, Kelly Clarkson's song that she does is so great it's um underneath the tree i think is what it's called that one is is amazing obviously mariah carey all i want for christmas is you oh no that's at the bottom ariana grande is great santa tell me like she's fantastic i think isn't Um, it weird how many of the old christmas movie or songs are all kind of creepy yeah like oh yeah baby it's cold outside whatever the song that song's called yeah it's it's a very rapey song yeah it's gross yeah it's they're I mean, that's a lot. I have a question about that in this movie. Not necessarily that, but like times have definitely changed. And it's just interesting the way that they went in directions with things because it it doesn't seem like it would ever be a good idea. But then here we are and people like Baby It's Cold Outside. Um, It's not a it's not a settling song. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think that that one's rough. But yeah, I think there are tons of amazing Christmas music. There's tons of amazing Christmas music out there. But like I was I didn't know if this is where White Christmas started from mm-hmm. um the song i would imagine so because otherwise that might be kind of weird but who freaking knows i yeah. could be incredibly wrong it's almost yeah. like i have an internet machine in front of me. maybe it's an old yeah maybe it's an old like pagan song that people sang way back in the day oh yeah i bet 
probably. It, Bing Crosby just has that classic voice, and it's it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was making our grandmas cream in their pants when when he was singing on stage. Probably. Can you say so. that on a podcast? <laughs> Why not? Who cares? I, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he definitely you know is. Mr. Holiday Classic. He has ties. Bing Crosby has ties to Anacortes, Washington, actually. I believe that oh. his his wife or, you know, she might have passed now or his his kin. They they have a house there. But yeah, Bing Crosby is. I know he was, he was born in Spokane. Something like that. But yeah, he was great. I mean, he was he was good in this movie. I enjoyed him. Um, he wasn't really like a womanizer or anything, which was really refreshing to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he could have said things a little differently, but he cared about like his friends and the girls. And I mean, you know. I didn't necessarily like the way he talked about things, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. Christmas music. So the movie starts out, we get the, the military scene and, and whatnot. Um, but when he, when Wallace is saved by Davis and then they decide they're going to go into show business and then he does the whole broken arm thing. Uh, we then get a blurb of headlines that are spinning across the screen and they come up and it's like, war's over. VE days over. Boys are coming home. And then, you see the progression of time. Uh, we see what happens with Wallace and Davis with some of these these newspaper headlines that just provide exposition. It is a trope that is used in movies time and time and time again, where we see the passage of time and we get an idea as a viewer of what's going on. It's like Zach eats ice cream today, loves it, and then moves on. And Zach finds out that ice cream is bad for him, hates it. And obviously that's the passage of time, right? So do you feel that this trope of these these expositional newspaper headlines. Do you think it's cheap in movies? No, no. I mean, you can think of some of the best movies of all time. Use this like, like a montage scene, basically like in Rocky, you know, the training montage. Cause the point, the point of the movie is not, you know, Rocky's training or, you know, uh, Phil and, and uh, Bob's rise to stardom. You know, that's not the point of the movie. The, the point of, the, of that scene is just to tell you like, okay, well now, now they're famous. Right. And instead of, taking 30 minutes to show you all these different scenes about that. Let's just take 30 seconds with this, you know, convenient cinematic device, you know, and I think it was actually cool in a way because that also tied in with some of the cue cards that they used throughout the movie to show different musical numbers they were doing, which was, I feel like of its time, you know, cause they, they had a certain technological restriction being that it was made in 54, but also it seemed like it was hearkening back to some of the like older styles that it might've been influenced by, like the vaudevillian uh, time period, you know, um, the, uh, when, back when it was not a recorded uh, uh, movie, it was, you know, a, a theater stage and they had to do things with certain restrictions. Right. And, and I get that. And, I, but I'm, I'm looking at it as just a, a film standpoint. And I, and I, you know, I follow up with that question too, by asking, would you have liked a more cinematic exposition device? And I'll, I'll kind of give you my example of what I was thinking, how I, how I believe you could uh, portray it. And obviously, you know, I'm Monday morning, quarter, Monday morning quarterbacking it, you know, uh, 60, 70 years later, but basically I think Edgar Wright does a fantastic job of his um, with his editing. It's one of his strongest points. And in the movie Hot Fuzz, we see the transition of time when um, Nicholas Angel goes to uh, he, he goes from London to the small town. And what happens is it's it's fast. It's quick. A lot of cuts. But it shows you his exhaustion, what he's doing, um, each mode of transportation he's in. 
but it's all very quick because then you understand, okay, this is a very long trip because he has to take three, uh, mm-hmm. he has to take a train, a, a taxi, a train, uh, and then a bus or something like that. So it's not just an easy flight. And I think a way that they could have probably done this was war's done, you know, show them dancing and singing to a few people in the crowd. Then it's a bigger venue and singing and dancing. And they're maybe spending more, a little more money. Like they can, they can buy a nice new car wash instead of the the dingy one. Um, and then they're eating nice steak dinners. And then there you go. Uh, I, I just think the newspaper thing is too on the nose at times. And it, it, it feels so cheap in my opinion, but like, that's what I'm talking about is I, I feel like maybe they could have used a different, exposition device but would you have any ideas on it yeah i mean the i think a, it, a cheaper way would have been if there was just like a title card that said two years later and yeah. then they use dialogue and they're like wow it's so great we're famous now anyway you know blah 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 like it's a way of physically showing the audience while there's a musical background without having to like waste time and, and film right it's I think that the, the the saving grace for this was that they actually had cutaways where you could see and they mm-hmm. complemented the headlines. If they just had six spinning headlines that just kept doing it back and back, back and forth, I'd be like, well, that yeah. was stupid. What, what's the point of that? I'd rather you just put 10 years later or you know, two years later, however long it was. Yeah. I think it was 10, uh, 10 years later. And then you just, you know, you, you have them they're like, wow, another sold out show or something. You know, you yeah. throw something in there. You, you don't. You can give nuggets. You don't have to be like another sold out show because after we left the army, we became really famous and made a lot of money and we've done this. You know, they can just say, wow, that was amazing. Another sold out show partner and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And you just kind of go from there. I mean, we're smart enough. I, I, my thing with exposition is I love when directors treat the audience, you know, as intelligent people like like we know how to connect the dots ourselves. Yeah. Um, and so well, speaking of Edgar Wright, imagine how amazing this movie could be made if it was remade by Edgar Wright. Like, yeah. and he had his own stylistic stamp on it. That could be really fun. I mean, anything he, he would remake would be really awesome. I'm not huge on remakes, but honestly, I think that something like this that just has the passage of time with the technology mm-hmm. we have and everything. Yeah, you could make it a, a whole a hell of a lot better. Um, and I think, yes, that would be that would be really awesome. I would see I would see this if Edgar Wright did a White Christmas. It would be funny. It would be weird. Mm-hmm. It would be just, yeah, a different movie. Yeah. So I, I, I would like that quite a bit, actually. Um, OK, well, so this is your favorite Christmas movie, correct? It's in my top three for sure. Oh, wow. I thought this was like your favorite. It's it's up there. I mean, it's probably tied, I would say, with Jingle All the Way. You know, honestly, I feel like a hypocrite for saying this, but that that probably is at least in the top five, even though I haven't seen it since I was a kid. But it still like it made an impression on me. I still quote, you know, remember, you're my number one customer. Oh, I love Jingle All the Way. I, I with unabashedly will say it's in my top five. It's yeah. it's amazing. It's so it's good. One. It captures what it's like to purchase a hot toy item in a retail marketplace because we don't have that anymore. Like brick and mortar mm. stores, most people just order online. You're never going to get a rush like that is right. anymore, right? That's so true. it captures the whole Black Friday feeling without being Black Friday. It's just last minute shoppers who are terrible. Mm. But yeah, love Jingle All the Way. But, but why do you like White Christmas so much? Because I got to tell you, Aaron, I was struggling a, mm. a little bit. Um, I like bits and pieces and I think I think what I'm missing is I want to hear your stance on it because I think that might make me like it more than what I did. But I just kept waiting. I was like, oh, my God, is it almost over? Because it just kept dragging on and on. But I'm curious, why why do you like it so much? So the simple answer is because I grew up watching it. You know, I I do think that if you're an adult now coming to it, uh, given what you know about society and you've seen all, all kind of different Christmas movies from lots of different angles and um, a lot higher production value, obviously, 
um, then it's kind of a hard hard to watch in the same sense that you know somebody growing up today watching Casablanca, you know, might be like, eh, this is boring. You know, they're just sitting in a room talking. You know, and it, but if you grew up like I did and you watched it 10 times, then you associate it with Christmas. Like for me, it doesn't feel like Christmas unless I've watched White Christmas and sung the songs and, and done all that stuff. So I think probably the simple answer is that my association with it. And if I was coming to it like you, I, I probably wouldn't like it as much, though I will say I do have a special place in my heart for the, like those 50s, 60s musicals. Like one of my favorite musicals is still The Music Man with Dick Van Dyke. You know, like that is, I think, one of the best musicals made of all time. And it was made in the 50s. So it's not that movies of this era can't be that good. It's just like, I think you're probably right on its face. Is it as good as love actually or you know elf or some of the more commonly recognized really good christmas movies probably not well and i think there's it you can't compare apples to apples on this one because it's they're they're different things and we talked about the box office going to a movie was an event and they would probably only have like three showings a day at most right and so it's not it's not as readily available as it would be now uh the budgets were a lot different the sets were a lot different. The mm-hmm. dialogue, this, all that kind of stuff was different. And so I'm not going to say that I can't appreciate it. So like Citizen Kane, I actually don't like. Um, I really, really? appreciate I really appreciate Citizen Kane for what it is. But just because it's the first or just because it radicalized something doesn't mean that it's the best. Yeah. Um, and I think it's an incredibly pretentious answer when people are like, my favorite movie, Citizen Kane and the Boondock Saints. Like, <laughs> yeah, they just looked at IMDb. That's all they it, did. Exactly. And, uh, and you know what? If you like it, justify it. There's nothing wrong with it. So like you're saying, I grew up watching it uh, with my parents. And that's what I figured. I was telling Candace, I was like, well, you know, Aaron likes it a lot and I think he likes it because, you know, he grew up watching it with his mom and his dad. And and I was like, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of movies for me, like con air. I fucking love because I grew up watching that with my family. Like we, it'd be on like TNT or we had it right. And we would just be watching it. And I'm like, this is such an awesome movie because it reminds me like of my dad. So, so there's nothing wrong with accepting it as a top, Christmas movie. It's just, you're right. It's harder for someone who hasn't seen it to just jump into a 70 year old movie and be like, Oh boy. Um, yeah. Okay. So what are your thoughts on the Santa Claus, the original with Tim, Allen? Tim Allen? I love the Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Great is great. That's one yeah. that I, I also watched when I was, you know, in my formative years, I, it came out in like 94 or something like that. So uh, seven, I think we were about seven. And mm-hmm. so watching that was awesome. I mean, I saw it in theaters. I love that. Oh, movie. wow. Oh yeah. Love that movie. Um, you know, there are some issues with it for sure, but like, I absolutely, I think it's great. Even so, now, some of the, some of, like, that's so outdated now, even 94. Oh, very, you know, kids growing up now are like, like, where are the cell phones? You know, mm-hmm. like, how comes nobody's looking at it, uh, Instagram or TikTok, you know? Well, and that's the problem too. With a lot of these, you can solve problems. You know, you could easily pick things apart and say, oh, well, this could be solved if they did, you know, this or if they wouldn't have a train ticket issue, if they could just Venmo or something like that, you know, there, there's yeah. like different, different things that you could say, or, Oh, he could have just tweeted this out or emailed his, his, uh, his buddies. He wouldn't have to go all the way on TV or, mm. you know, if he would have just explained it to, to Betty instead of Emma instigating things, which oh, is that's so frustrating. It's a trope I hate in movies when there's a logical explanation, but people just won't listen to others or they mm-hmm. speak, um, in, in coded language. 
and and it's like Jesus Christ, come on, you know. Yeah, that's the most frustrating thing about this movie. We were talking about in this one. It's like, it's just a simple misunderstanding. The nosy secretary didn't listen to the whole conversation. And then you believed her and you didn't go talk to Bob. You know, Betty was just like, oh, okay, Bob's a piece of shit now. Cool, I'm done. And it's like, if you had just asked him, hey, what's the plan for for this thing? Like, you would never have had a conflict in this whole movie. Or if if she was an adult and just addressed something directly, like communicated and said, okay, so this is what I heard. And then yeah. he's like, what? No, 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 no. That's a misunderstanding. Be like, that is yeah. not what I want. Instead, it's interesting that yeah. she was definitely like the, like the villain in this movie, you know, like the antagonist. She was the cause of the problems. Emma? Well, her too, but also Betty. Betty. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't really see it that way. I, I just see it as she was struggling. I, I wasn't bought on, sold on their love story um, either, but you know, I, I'm sure she was hurting. And I think that she thought one thing about Bob and then it just became a, whoa, like this is completely different. And so, yeah. That was hard for her. I think that's why she ran. Um, I think I wish they could have focused a little bit more on that because it just took so long to get to Bob and, and Betty's story. Uh, yeah. But yeah. It, you know, it, it's fine. These again, these movies, they're made in a different time. And we sometimes we just have to accept that it doesn't mean we can be super happy with it, but it is a part of it. Just like, you know, aside from the obvious title, White Christmas, it also kind of serves as a double entendre. Honestly, there are a lot of white people in this goddamn movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that this is 1954 Hollywood and times were different. But how can you capture the mod- modern audience with a movie like this with no racial diversity? Because isn't that like problematic? Yes, I, it is. And before I fully answer trivia question for you, because we watched and we were trying to count. Are John there any Stamos. people? He's not a person of color, but do you know how many people of color there were in the movie? One. Do you know who it was? It was the, uh, the car. Um, what's it called? The, the food car club car. There you go. I've been on a train once. Uh, yeah, the club car guy. Um, and he has no speaking lines except he does have a point of emphasis when he pours the drinks and they look like snow and serves the food. And that's what I'm talking about because I mean, it's good that, you know, we're essentially quote unquote woke and we can see this and be like, this is an issue. Mm-hmm. It, there's no representation in this movie and we're still seeing it now. I mean, we're not seeing, you know, black film directors and women film directors and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, Jesus, why are we dragging our feet so much on this? So I think it's, it's tough with movies like this. However, this one doesn't make it a point of like, we're white. So we're going to do all these things. It's a, it's a story about two guys who got successful during the time and they're just trying to do a good thing for their general. And so it's it's hard because I guarantee that probably in that World War II, there were some African-Americans and there were some probably, you know, indigenous peoples there, too. Um, but with this film, it was all white people and it was it was a little hard to watch. But yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like you, you, you mentioned a couple movies earlier, like uh, um, Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. where I don't, I don't believe there were any people of color in Citizen Kane or other major movies of that time, you know, Rear Window, um, North by Northwest, I'd have to rewatch, but I don't think there were, you know, Casablanca, there was Sam, but it's like there was very little representation in those days, which really sucks. Because yep. I, I wonder about like who were we robbed of ever getting to see and experience because they didn't have opportunities. You know, now that it's 
and I'm not saying that it's a level playing field now, but now that there is more representation and more opportunity for either people of color or people of other uh, genders or, you know, identities that they can get roles Mm -hmm. in, in this, in this world, I think we're, we've made a lot of progress, which, but that almost makes it just harder to go back and watch those older movies, especially for younger people who didn't grow up watching them, you know, like that would definitely stand out to somebody younger than 40 you know, yeah, or even 50 that watch it now, like, dang, uh, I, I know there were, you know, black people, there were Indian people, there were Asian people, there, all these people that they were not represented at all. Yes, I agree. There is no representation. I'm glad that it's getting to be that point, And I'm glad that we're correcting certain mistakes. And, and there wasn't anything overtly racist in this film, unless I just completely missed it. It's just the exclusion of the people of color, which yeah. is a different kind of conversation. Um, but I will say there was a rep, there's a type of representation that I thought was interesting and that I didn't really think about until this viewing. And that was not a racial representation, but a representation of maybe other, um, lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Like when they did the sisters act, Bob and Phil, and they dressed up in some of the clothing that the women had, right. From my understanding of what the fifties were like with the over machismo, toxic masculinity thing for two guys who were big stars to, you know, dress up and basically play as women. That's, that seems out of place almost for the time. Yeah. Dress up like some dames. Yeah. It was, I, I, I also, I thought the same thing. I'm like, Ooh, this is risque. Like, in the fifties, you know, essentially cross-dressing. Um, I mean, mm. I get, I get the the play on it, and they weren't, they weren't making fun of of anybody who's who's transitioning or anything like that, you know, because back then they didn't really understand it at all. But mm. it, this was more of a just a funny thing to buy time with with the record being played. Right. Um, it wasn't trying to make fun of anybody. It was just, ha I got you. You thought the sisters were coming out, but it's just us, and we rolled up our <laughs> our pant. Legs that was a great scene too. It was good. I, I thought it was funny. Um, I, I enjoyed it, but yeah, I was saying the same thing. I'm like, oh man, you know that there are probably some people back in the fifties who are like, who are these Nancy's? I don't like this oh, movie. Probably. But you know what I love most about that scene? And I don't want to get hung up on it, but th- you can tell watching that scene that it was probably not the cleanest take they had. Cause there was a couple parts where like Bob, you could tell his, he was laughing because of, of Phil's antics. And he, it seemed like he would generally, it was almost like a broken, uh, scene where he broke character but they still kept that scene that take as the final scene you know for that scene and it wasn't perfect but it was so endearing you know their rapport yeah they did have a good rapport i enjoyed it um davis had he stuttered every once in a while or his his voice would go like that and that was (laughs) very interesting i thought um yeah so yeah you know i i really let me see. Okay, so the film, it was the first in VistaVision, like I was saying in the trivia, uh, but not the first in Technicolor. Uh, removing colors by using black and white filters is a technique that has been adopted again and again by many filmmakers um, in nowadays films like Batman v Superman, The Snyder Cut, The Lighthouse, Mad Max Fury Road, and Roma. So what I'm saying is, with Technicolor, films were in black and white before that. Then Technicolor came in things like um, probably the most uh, no, probably the n- most famous film to use Technicolor was The Wizard of Oz. And people mm. realize it started black and white. Then it goes to the Technicolor and it's beautiful. It's very bright and, and vibrant. I saw a lot of that in this movie with 
things like Bing Crosby's eyes being so blue. They were so incredibly blue. And I thought that was interesting. So then flash forward to the past like 15 years when we've seen a lot of filmmakers revert to a black and white um, setting or like a sepia tone setting for their films, which gives it a whole different story and a whole different feel. And I think drastically changes a movie. Um, how would you feel if White Christmas, instead of this VistaVision, if it was in black and white, would it change it for you? I think it absolutely would. And obviously they wanted to use color because it was somewhat of a new thing. And they were tired, I'm sure, of doing black and white. They're like, finally, we can include color. And why, you know, the those movies that you named, those are using color stylistically, um, just because they want to, not because they had to. So for somebody in the fifties to go back and use, you know, quote unquote outdated black and white film would have been kind of weird at the time. I think they, we needed some time for it to become normalized for color to be used to go back to black and white, but also the black and white, I feel like gives it sort of a grittiness, you know, like the easiest example would be a noir movie where it's black and white, the lighting is very muted, there's a lot of shadows, and it's got that grittiness to it. And if you looked at another Christmas movie that was black and white, like It's a Wonderful Life, it's got sort of that gritty, dark feeling to a lot of it. You know, even the parts that are supposed to be happy. Whereas this movie was so soppy and so positive and so lovey-dovey and, you know, romantic that it, I think it really needs color because it would have a very different tone if it was in black and white. You know, it just wouldn't have had that poppy, fun, you know, positive energy to it. Yeah, and It's a Wonderful Life is a good example because they they have on Amazon Prime um, a color version and a black and white version. And I prefer the black and white every single day. Um, mm. It's so much better than the color version. It just doesn't fit the the vibe, especially when George Bailey realizes he's going to kill himself. It's like, I don't want to see this in color. And so, yeah, it just yeah. it gives it a better payoff. And I think that filmmakers like, um, uh, oh, my God, like George Miller doing Mad Max Fury Road and making a all chrome edition or whatever he called it um, makes a lot of sense because it, it just makes the movie feel so much more epic and just different. I think 300 also did a, a black and white version and it, it looks mm. pretty badass. So I enjoy the hell out of it. Plus it, it brings out different definition in things that is not normally seen because there's the color palette just explodes on the screen. So you see definition in, in things in, in a different way. Yeah. Um, so I, I like that, but yeah. What was your question early about Vista vision when we were uh, discussing it at the top of the hour? Oh, like, did you notice the VistaVision camera? Like, do you think if it was shot with the regular camera at the time that it would have been materially a lot different? I feel that this was a wide movie and it was a big movie. So it so, yes, I think the VistaVision really paid off because there were scenes like the opening where it's supposed to be this vast landscape with a terrible painted background that clearly <laughs> they're not outside, but it still looks like a grander scale. It's not like a tight thing like like a stage play and essentially a lot of these movies are stage plays because they're filmed in a studio but like with these it covers a lot more and you can fit more characters onto the screen and and put different depth of field in there too so you have your middle your four and your background uh, characters and you get all of them in there so yeah i think the vista vision really did enhance it for me because there was a lot going on in scenes and you Mm -hmm. could see a lot of it too plus i mean the, the colors were great don't get me wrong um this is a movie that definitely I agree with you benefits from the color and cause you were talking about musicals and stuff and I do like musicals, but I think one of the things that impresses me the most, especially about this movie was 
the sing song and the, and the dancing that they did for uh, like the minstrel, whatever the play mm-hmm. when they did the dress rehearsal and it's this huge number and all this amazing dancing and flipping. And it's like a 10 minute scene. And then you realize it's just for general Waverly, Emma and his granddaughter. Yeah, that was a great um, scene. Good scene. But it, like, I really appreciate looking at that. Cause I'm like, Holy shit, the choreography that went into this and just the dresses that the girls were wearing were beautiful. Um, the colors that everyone else had was amazing. And, and you know, the tapestry and the pageantry, all of it looked amazing. So mm. I really liked that. And I think that this movie benefits from the color because of how vibrant everything was once yeah. they got out of Florida, in my opinion. Yeah. But, well said. Yeah. So I think it, it worked out really well. Um, Okay, so this movie, like many of its time, it was filmed in a studio lot with uh, man-made sets. And I was just kind of saying that, how you look in the background, it's like a painted background of mountains, and you're like, well, clearly they're not in Vermont, which is, you know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of things that were, they were same locations. They felt exactly like the same location. So uh, the club in Florida felt exactly like the the, uh, pine tree, the Columbia Inn, I should say. the train station felt just like the out or the exterior of the pine tree or of the Columbia Inn. God, I fumbled in my words. But what I'm trying to say is, did it distract you that the Columbia Inn was essentially the same location in every scene in this movie? Were you distracted that this was clearly a studio set and it was nothing more? No, it didn't distract me knowing that it was a set. It was probably the first time that I've really consciously thought about it, despite it being somewhat obvious if you just thought about it for 10 seconds. But I actually disagree that all the different sets seemed like they were at the Columbia Inn in Pine Tree. Like the, I thought the sets in Florida and the sets in New York when Betty had left, I thought those they did a really good job of making it feel like a separate location because those were all mostly indoors you know, locations, areas in a nightclub. So it, I think it's a lot easier to just kind of put a new you know, set a drywall up and paint and lighting and make it seem like a different location. Um, I will say that it did seem to me like they had to have used a giant set and Mm -hmm. to take advantage of that VistaVision camera. So that impressed me more than anything. I thought it was really impressive. Like you said, that war scene at the beginning with how many guys were on, uh, were on, you know, in frame at one point and at the ending with that room, which realistically was not (laughs) like a real room that somebody would have in an inn because it was a huge auditorium to have all those people in there. Um, I thought it was more impressive. And some of the set design I thought was great. Like that Florida um, club that they were playing at where when, when Phil and Judy were dancing in that number out on the dock and there was that moving water underneath them to consider this is all happening indoors. So they had to construct like the mm-hmm. fake waterway, fill it with water, all that stuff. I thought it was actually more impressive. I mean, there is a an art in it too, sure. Like the old Hollywood, old Hollywood, the Golden Age. I mean, a lot of that stuff. It's really impressive for the set design, and I think it's it's incredible. And you still have amazing set design now, um, but it, it does keep the budget low, which makes sense for something like this. I mean, you're not we're not talking Lawrence of Arabia where you're going outside and thinking of that movie and yeah. filming something in the desert and on location. I mean, those those types of locational films are, you know. Um, they weren't a dime a dozen back then. They were very rare. So that's why I think it's it's interesting. I mean, even Citizen Kane was basically a, a backlot. Well, and also I, I feel like you were saying you can't compare them apples to oranges because those are epic movies set with like a huge 
field of view where you need like the entire desert scape to, to be your landscape, your, your background. Whereas most, like I would say 90% of this movie happened indoors. So you could shoot it anywhere. You don't necessarily have to be in Vermont. Right. And I think a lot of these movies feel like a stage play. That's why it could easily translate over to like Mm -hmm. a musical or like an actual production. Um, And and it does make sense in, in that setting. But I do think that it was a little distracting for me at times, but it's because I'm not well versed in, in older film. And so I didn't see it. I don't, I I haven't seen this very often, but I got, I got over it. You know, I wasn't like, it wasn't incredibly distracting for me, but at at first I was like, okay, well that sucks. Like those trees are terrible, but you know, I get it. Okay. Well, yeah. So that's actually all I have to say about white Christmas. There were things about it that I liked. There were plenty of things I didn't necessarily like or I was neutral on, but we will discuss that in a second because I want to get your hottest take. Now, I want you to defend your hottest or most controversial take on on this movie, on movies of this genre, on actors, on songs, on Christmas itself, whatever you want to defend, go ahead, hit me with your best shot. Yeah, I feel like whenever you talk about a a religious holiday like Christmas, it's easy to say something controversial. But this movie is such a hard movie to have a controversial opinion on because it's so vanilla, so kind of placid. You know, there's not really anything that happens in it that is controversial. Mm -hmm. The, The conflict of the story revolves around an interpersonal dispute. You know, there's not any, like you said, overt like bigotry or, or, or hatred in the, in the movie. So I would say regarding the movie, my only controversial take would be that Bing Crosby is the voice of Christmas and always will be Mm. like this when I, and I don't think it's just me because the way I was brought up, but Bing Crosby did so many different Christmas songs and had became so famous for them that he talked about later in life being really annoyed and grumpy about the fact that everybody's always asking him to sing white Christmas, you know? So I think that he's the, the, the voice of Christmas. And as an aside, Danny Kay is one of the best physical comedians ever mm. full stop up there with Robin Williams. Um, and Dick Jim Carrey, Charlie Chaplin. Are you sure? Lucille he's up Ball, there. He's up there with them. Chris Farley. Yeah. He's up Dick there. Van Dyke is I'm not great. saying he's number one, but yeah. you know, he's up there. Rowan Atkinson. Sure. Bean. You should love Rowan Atkinson. Mr. I do. Bean. No, he's, he's kind of one dimensional, but yeah, he's good. Oh, he's amazing. I yeah, think it's but he's always that character. Yeah, but I think we talked about we've talked about comedians transitioning and I I would argue here, maybe I'll just say this is my hot well, this isn't my hottest take, but this is like part of a hottest take. I think comedians are the best actors that you can have because mm-hmm. it is so much harder to be funny than it is to be dramatic. Um, I could try to tell jokes and be funny, but people just won't know. I could write a funny tweet. I could say something funny and people be like, whatever. But if yeah. if Seth Rogen says it or Jonah Hill says it or Michael Sarah <laughs> says it. Yeah. If they just if they're like pasta's overrated, it tastes like, you know, rubber noodles or something. People are like, oh, my God, that's so funny. Right. Mm. But some people are just hilarious. Dave Chappelle, he's so fucking funny and mm. it's crazy. Right. So I think that that comedic actors if you can hit it big as a comedian, you can transition into anything. And oh, yeah. so, so I would I, I I liked. Yes, I liked him a lot. Danny Kay was was good. He was um, oh. I liked what he was doing in this movie. But yeah, I, I could see what you're saying with your opinion of being a great physical physical comedian, because like I was laughing when he you know he hurts his leg and he's like, walk me around again once more. And so he, he did a good job with a lot of that stuff, even his subtleties of shaking 
Bob's hand at the start with his broken arm that was supposed to be broken. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it's not that bad. And then he subtly kind of rubs his arm when he wants to guilt trip him into something. I mean, he he did a lot of fun stuff in it for sure. So, yeah. And so this is not a controversial take per se, or even a, a take. But one thing that I thought about watching this time was it almost seemed like they were setting up Danny Kaye's character, Phil Davis, to be homosexual. Because when he first gets together with uh, Judy, he seems he's very hesitant about any affection with her. He doesn't want to kiss her. He barely wants to hug her. And he just goes along with this ruse of them getting together to try to set his friend up. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, you either have no interest at all in this beautiful woman who's right in front of you for some reason. Maybe you just don't, you know, you, you don't. You don't care, or what if the sub the subtext is he's actually gay, you know? And I thought that would have been a, a really nice turn of events, but obviously in the fifties they weren't going to do that, right? Yeah, I I agree. All the signs were there. You're right to kind of show like how he freaks out about the commitment with the women and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like he's playing fast and loose just as an act. Um, but yeah. That's uh, interesting. You should write to the the ancestors of the writers of this film and see if they'll they'll listen to your opinion. They probably I'm sure they will stab you in the face. So yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. One of my hottest takes is I just don't like old movies very much. Honestly, <sighs> I'm just not a I'm not an old movie guy. Um, I I can appreciate them for sure. I just am like, oh my god! Unless it's something like Hitchcock, which the suspense is just incredible. Um, mm. There are some good ones out there too that I really enjoy for sure. I'm not going to say they're all bad. I just what's o- the oldest decade tough. of movies that you still enjoy generally? Oh god, it's tough. Probably 70s, um, because there's still modern advances. But even 70s can be rough at times because there's mm-hmm. moments of of slow talking dialogue that doesn't seem natural. Um, again, set pieces are weird. The storylines are, are kind of flat, like you're saying, um, like vanilla. And so it's not, they started getting more experimentive in the sixties and then seventies for sure. And then eighties were just kind of crazy and a lot of action, but yeah, I'd say, I'd say around the seventies, probably I'd, I'd have to really, narrow that down but otherwise it is it is hard when someone's like you should watch this movie from 1958 and i'm like i will say i mean the 70s with the renaissance and what we saw of like the big box office movies with like the godfather and jaws and rocky rocky close Halloween. you know yeah yeah absolutely there are a lot of big 70s movies that i can definitely get down with so okay cool uh what do, do you have any final thoughts on white christmas and what is your letter grade okay final thoughts I will say it's incredibly frustrating watching a movie like this where the conflict could so easily be resolved by a quick conversation. But I will say it, it seemed like they must, they needed some sort of conflict for it to be not just completely sunshine and rainbows throughout the whole thing. Um, but for that, I'm going to give it a little bit of a downgrade and, you know, the lack of representation and it being somewhat whitewashed, I will say it's a B plus for me. You know, it, it, when I was growing up, it was probably an A, A minus. It's a B plus for me now. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's respectable though. It's still, you're, you're right in line with that uh, audience score there with the 88%. Yeah, true. So, um, I agree with what you're saying too. Uh, yeah, the representation and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, yes, this easily could have been 
smoothed over with a conversation that someone would have had if Emma wasn't eavesdropping. Um, but it feels like that plot device was just lazy writing. And I don't want to speak for them or, or chastise them, but it just it does feel like lazy writing. Like they're like, oh, shit, we need to drive this plot a certain way. How about she eavesdrops? And then it's just a misunderstanding and the misunderstanding yeah. trope. I cannot stand. I think it's it's so stupid. Um, and so it, it, it really hurt the movie, in my opinion. Uh, it, it, it just dragged a bit too much. I, I wish this movie was not two hours long. They could have shaved at least 30 minutes and I would have been actually a lot happier. It just dragged and dragged. There were redeeming qualities. I really enjoyed when General Waverly came in and the look on his face of, you know, mm. admiration that everyone showed up and, and just appreciation. And it was it was so great. So I liked that quite a bit, but I would say that this has got to be a C for me, probably. Hmm. So this is this is in line with IMDb's seven seven point five. I was like, that seems about right. Um, I'm not going to knock it because it's a, it's a classic. A lot of people like it, but for me, I think it's right there in that seventy five percent range. Okay, well, C's a passing grade. That it is. It is passing. Um, okay, cool. So, what movies are you excited for, and what should I be watching? Okay, so. Three movies that I'm really excited for. One, Babylon, because Damien Chazelle is directing it, and it's got an amazing cast with Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Rami Malek, a um, bunch of other people I forget. That looks really great. It's sort of like Gatsby-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Creed Three. the trailer got me hyped for that, and I know that you have been a big fan of the Creed series. I had never watched any of them, so the day after Fee and I saw the Creed Three trailer, we went and watched Creed One. really liked it. So excited for the third one. And then Knock at the Cabin, which I just saw a trailer for uh, before the last movie I saw. That's the one. It's like a intense murder mystery sort of thing. Sci-fi fantasy sort of with Dave Bautista. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited for that one, not knowing much about it because Dave Bautista, I feel like associates himself with some really good projects, you know, like Blade Runner 2049 and obviously Guardians of the Galaxy. Like the guy chooses some, some really, really good projects to be on. And Um, WWE. (laughs) Yeah. You know, classic. Um, And then watching now we're watching the show 1899 Mm -hmm. on Netflix, which is made from the creators of the show dark, which is a great German show. And it, it, the, the reception has not been amazing. It's kind of like that 75, 85% range, but mm-hmm. we are really, really enjoying it. Very dark, very um, kind of slow and methodical, but lots of cliffhangers at every episode. And we have no idea what's coming next, which is the best part. Yeah. I mean, that's a hallmark of a good show. I have, I have also heard that 1899 is good. Um, mm-hmm. I did not watch dark. Uh, it is on my list of eventual shows that I will get to. It's just, there are so many and yeah. I just don't have the time, but uh, I do want to see Babylon. Amsterdam is on HBO max, which is a uh, Margot Robbie movie as well. And it's Christian Bale, Margot Robbie and John David Washington. So uh, I do want to see that. It looks awesome. There's a ton of other great actors in it as well. Um, Willow, the hmm. if, you, if you liked Willow growing up the movie, uh, there is a new TV series and Warwick Davis is in it. And I just want to be happy again because Willow hmm. is just such a fun and lighthearted movie. And I'm very excited for it. So I never saw it. It is out now. It's on Disney Plus. Willow, the original is on Disney Plus, too. And it is so fun. But that also might be similar to White Christmas, where it's a product of the time you have to kind of see it because now it'd be like, oh, these look a little cheesy. But like when you're a kid and you see all this 
witchcraft and magic and, and, and adventure. It's so great. Like and Labyrinth or the never ending story. Exactly. And I never liked Labyrinth. I never liked um, Legend, but I love Willow. I think Willow and they're all kind of cut from the same cloth. So the the show is out. I will jump on it. I've just, again, been busy. Um, you like Dave Bautista. I love. um uh Oh my God, Ryan Johnson. And so Knives Out, uh, Glass Onion, a Knives Out story comes out on the 23rd um, on Netflix. I think it's in theaters this week for one week and then it'll be available on Netflix. But I mean- We went and saw that. Oh, you it saw it good. already? Oh, yep, cool. It was good. Okay. I won't give you too many expectations. No, I, yeah, I, I don't want to hear any reviews on it. I imagine it'll be awesome. Um, Pinocchio is out right now too. Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. So I want to see that. So yeah, there's there's a bunch that I could, I could, I could watch and I definitely will. But yeah, just use the streaming services or buy things. I've been buying a ton. I bought Nope. I bought Maverick. Um, so yeah, pumped. Yep. Cool beans. Well, yeah, so that was a good show. That's all I really got for White Christmas. Um, real quick, what is your favorite Christmas tradition? Oh, okay. Uh, well, I mean, I think the obvious answer would be get, getting the Christmas tree. We always made it a big thing, like the day after Thanksgiving, going to a Christmas tree farm, picking it out, cutting it down, setting it up, decorating it. And it was a big thing that kind of signified the real shift from being just fall to being like Christmas time. So I would say getting the Christmas tree is by far my favorite Christmas tradition. Do you have uh, a real tree right now? Oh, you better believe it. We got the sickest tree. It's like seven feet tall and we got the tall ceiling. So it's all decorated. I didn't lay a finger on that tree when we uh, decorated it, but I got to cut it down. Wow. And yeah. Oh, yeah. If the tree is sick, Aaron, it's, it means it's bad. You got to throw it away. We water it every couple of weeks. Yeah, I got a fake tree. I'm team fake tree. I love it. I've had mine for like five years and it is fantastic. I spray it with Febreze so it smells like pine. Uh, <laughs> I am I am like That's cheating. A tree is like a pizza for me. I don't care about the crust. I mean, I, I want a good crust, a solid crust, but I care about the toppings. And the toppings for me oh. for a tree are the ornaments. I love ornaments. I love to collect them. I love to get new ones. Yeah, there are so many awesome ornaments out there. And so I like my fake tree. My artificial tree is what I'll say, uh, because bought it for like $25 about five years ago. And it's this is the fifth Christmas I've had it up. Uh, so. It's not about the money, you know, it's about the feeling of Christmas. It's about this the, is the real. Smell this gives pine. me tons of feeling. This gives me tons of smells of pine. We live in a place where we can go outside and smell a pine tree. So if I were somewhere else and I could get a, a pine tree, yeah, I would probably do that. Like if I were somewhere in the Midwest that didn't have pine trees for some reason. Yeah, I would get a pine tree. Um, however, with this. It just works out really well. But. All right. Agree cool. to disagree. Yeah. Very, very great. Well, Aaron, awesome, as always, having you on for mm-hmm. making me watch a movie that I'd never seen <laughs> before. Um, we'll do The Fountain next. Oh, boy. Yeah. Long time coming. I have to prepare myself for that one. Yep. <laughs> um, where can we find you on social media? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, uh, underscore B-E-A-N-A-A-R. And uh, that's about it. Twitter. I don't Twitter. know. I don't do much else. I don't do Snapchat or, Inst- or uh, TikTok or any of that. No, I don't Snapchat either. I don't TikTok. I like some funny videos here and there, but it's not it's not for me. So yeah, coolness. All right. Well, with that being said, thank you everyone for listening to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter at dbcrazypod and at zachdale60, where you can share your thoughts, give us film suggestions, tell us we are crazy, or just send us funny memes. Make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review if you like. Additionally, we are also available on every other major podcast app. Thank you for listening, and until next time, don't be crazy.
Tschüss.